This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, the chair of the Department of Economics at the University of San Francisco. This episode is sponsored by the University of San Francisco's Master's Degree in Applied Economics and USF's Center on Business Studies and Innovation. My guest today is Martin Peitz, professor of economics at the University of Mannheim and a director of the Mannheim Center for Competition and Innovation. He is an expert on competition and regulation, particularly in digital markets, who frequently advises and trains government agencies in Europe and around the world on these topics. In addition to his numerous academic journal publications on these topics, he's also the co-author of a widely used textbook on industrial organization. I've invited him on today to talk about his newest textbook, The Economics of Platforms, Concepts and Strategies, which was published last year by Cambridge University Press. I used it myself for teaching this semester and highly recommend it. Martin, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on. Um, so let's just start with the basics. Um, you know, some of our listeners are, are economists or have some training uh, in that, but but others are not, or maybe you know only took a class uh, many years ago and haven't uh, kept up with trends. So so first of all, what is a platform? Well, it's not that easy. I guess you can ask a number of people and will get different answers. Uh, we of course decided on a particular definition, and uh, you can opt for a different one. For us, uh, the key element of platforms are, first of all, the presence of network effects, which means that my decision will be affected um, by participation decisions and usage decisions of others, and uh, the fact that this platform is actually managing those network effects. So it takes a a very active role in, for example, steering um, buyers to sellers or uh, leading to interaction, say, on a communication uh, platform. Okay, so I, so that differs from just being a marketplace. Like, so you could say, you know, um, whatever, a farmer's market or, a, or an old-fashioned uh, tourist bazaar is kind of a, some people call that a platform because it gathers people together and they make exchanges. Would that fall into your category? So at the basic level, it does satisfy it, especially if you can control entry. Uh, You can do this through price, for example. Um, So 
thereby you're affecting the number of participants, say how many uh, people are there as sellers, vendors, how many people are buyers. So at the basic level, this is a platform. It's a very basic one where there may be just a pricing instrument, but there may be a bit more. You may have some people standing outside, taking a look at who's trying to enter and take out those, deny access to those people who may uh, who look like that they may create trouble. So then we do have indeed already a non-price element in there. And this does lead to, a, in a way, to a management of network effects. So you may um, have then fewer users, but in a way, the quality of those users are better from the viewpoint of, of the others who want to interact. So I would say that does satisfy uh, my definition of the platform. It doesn't probably... Uh, give uh, explain why we are nowadays much more concerned about platforms than say 20 or 30 years ago it's not just that we in a way invented um, this notion uh, about 20 years ago uh, I think now we are living with animals where this management of network effects has become much more important yeah, so that was my next question. So, so you know, as as I indicated, you know, marketplaces in some form with with some kind of governance or pricing to you know decisions about who can participate and who can't um, have been uh, you know been around for you know centuries or millennia. But um, you know, this idea of platforms is definitely a, a newer concept. Um, so, so why is that? Why is this uh, a big new area of study? So I think the platforms nowadays affect larger part of our life. Uh, and so it means we have now active intermediaries and many of our interactions and transactions uh, depend on the governance uh, of these platforms. Uh, and and nowadays, why don't you just name off some of the major ones just so people... Yeah, so I mean, take uh, as, as a very basic example, if we take Google search as a way to discover the world, but also to discover products. Um, so there clearly the Google algorithm plays an extremely important role to decide on what we are going to see, which then affects our search behavior and uh, it's just a fraction of what is around, uh, what we will ever see. And uh, clearly, the algorithm is deciding on what we will see. So then that, that's, um, right, so that's one important platform. And then I guess, um, so would you classify, uh, so companies like Uber and Lyft that, you know, connect buyers and sellers as of, of a service or Airbnb, um, would also be platforms. Uh, would you call Facebook a platform in your in your framing? Um, so I start with the last one. Uh, so I think there have been some disagreements of whether Facebook is a platform. So some people say, well, it's just a social network. Well, at least in the early days, it was just a social network. But from my point of view, it's not really necessary to be able to isolate different groups which interact with each other but it's just the mere fact that there is this group interaction which matters and that this group interaction is managed uh, which makes the entity a platform um, so i think there's some different notions in the literature so i distinguish those type of platforms and then if there are separate groups or or sites uh, as it's often said 
then I would call them actually a, a multi-sided or a two-sided platform. Right. So, yeah. So why don't we talk more about, um, you, you mentioned the idea of network effects. So why don't we introduce those? So what's, what's the basic idea of network effects? So the notion of network effects uh, has been formally used in economics in the, at some point in the second half of the last century, uh, 1970s. And these were communication networks, at that point, uh, landline telephones. And there the idea is that each additional person joining allows for additional communication possibilities also for those who are actually already on the network. And this then generates network effects. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because if I'm making my participation decision, I may just look at my own benefit, perhaps at the benefit of some very close by, say the fa- uh, some members of family, but I may ignore uh, the effect of me joining the network on those which are further away from me. And uh, so that means there is the risk that there is an under-provision that too few people will actually join because uh, they don't really include those network effects. And that's, I think, right. where the, the formal economic uh, analysis, the economic theory of networks started. Right. And so, and so then a key, key characteristic of this, right. So you might, you might have under provision, um, and also kind of an, an accelerating, uh, level of, of participation. Once you, once you maybe hit some threshold where, you know, the, to be the third person on a telephone network is not really worth much effort or much cost, but once there's, you know, a thousand people or a million people on it, then, then it becomes much more valuable. Perhaps before thinking about dynamics, um, one can think about, well, what could really happen in a stable scenario? And uh, one feature um, in the presence of network effects is that there are often what we call multiple equilibria, meaning multiple situations where nobody has an incentive uh, to revise its decision. Um, so if everybody thinks that uh, this network is no, nobody is going to use that network, well, then nobody will join, and that remains a stable situation. Uh, however, if sufficient people are convinced that this network will take off, people will use it, then indeed it will be used and everybody will be happy about it. And then we can think about the dynamics. So there is the risk uh, to be locked into a situation where there's nobody or very few people joining that network, or there is a possibility that people coordinate uh, on a situation in which indeed many people are joining. And things become more complicated if it's not just one network, but if when people have to choose between different networks, And there the risk is that people actually coordinate on the inferior network, the one which actually provides less utility. But if everybody thinks that's the one people will use, then people are staying there. And I think that's part of the discussion when we move quickly into the uh, current century and uh, competition uh, between platforms. There is the concern that uh, people stay with an incumbent platform and they are hesitant to move to a newcomer uh, simply because they don't know whether other people will be moving as well. Right. And you can certainly see that, you know, concretely now, if, you know, if you follow Twitter, there's all this discussion of, I mean, 
uh, two or three weeks ago, you know, as the, the sale was finalized, many people saying, oh, well, now everyone's going to have to leave Twitter because it's not going to be, you know, good anymore. And, but, and so people setting up accounts on Mastodon are proposing other networks, but yet Twitter still seems just as active because if everyone is, you know, even if they have half a foot out the door, but they're still checking, then you can pretty much find out everything that you would find out uh, on Twitter and then moving to a smaller network, uh, even if you like the moderation policy or something else uh, better there, it's just hard because everyone else is still doing the, the other thing. Yes, yeah, so I think it depends very much on the specific content. And you can imagine there have been some examples in the past where people actually did move quickly. But then there are others, uh, many others where people haven't been moving, indeed. Yeah, so so how does that... Um, well, so let, let's step back to um, so the, the purpose and, and audience of your book um, to, to frame things a little bit more. Um, so who, who is it intended for? Well, of course, since I would like to convince everybody, I should say it's it's for everybody. And I mean, since there are network effects, you will benefit, especially if many other people are also reading this book. Um, But uh, on a more um, concrete level, so we have two um, broad audiences in mind. One, uh, first, is economic students or students taking courses in economics or related. I know it has the book is also partly used in, in management. Um, who are, however, interested in a somewhat formal approach. Um, so we do have some um, formulas in there, some small models to work through. Uh, so that's one audience. And the second audience, uh, which we are also addressing, uh, are people working in practice, um, competition, uh, economics, people uh, working for um, consultancies, people working in agencies, particular competition authorities. Mm-hmm. And is the the goal for them to? Uh, is it a how to manual? Is it you know you mentioned it's formal, so there are some some short case studies, but it's it's really based on um, you know in, in as as we do as economists um, explaining kind of the underlying conceptual frameworks, right? Yes, it's really a focus on mechanisms, and those mechanisms are then, uh, in a way, made concrete uh, through formal models and illustrated through small cases. Yes. And so um, so it could be useful both for someone taking the perspective of, I mean, obviously for anyone who's just interested in academically understanding things, but as you said, like from a, a regulatory perspective of how do we you know, uh, set up a regulatory environment where the the best elements of these uh, platforms can can flourish, and and we can take advantage of them without, um, you know, creating problems. And then also maybe more from the sort of MBA business management side, uh, understanding if you're working in one of those or or even interacting with one of them as a participant, then how how should you understand them, and how can you how can you strategically deal with them. So um, let's say let's take it from the uh, some of the questions you have here, um, which are uh, maybe maybe more relevant from the business perspective. So you mentioned like the dynamic situation, like how do you? Uh, what are some of the challenges of, of growing a platform? You have this equilibrium where no one's on your platform because no one's on your platform, and it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, or where everyone's on your platform, even if it's terrible, maybe, um, and that can be a self fulfilling prophecy. But how do you? Uh, go from from one to the other 
Yes, I think the first one, which is the one which probably um, means less direct involvement uh, in in uh, in those uh, interactions is uh, trying to do expectation management. So it's it's all about convincing people uh, that something will work, and there, in a way, precedent can help. Um, so what we have seen is that some su- successful platforms they entered one market, they perhaps took them a while. Uh, say a national market, particular country, but when they were successful there, um, they were um, much more quickly successful in other markets which they entered afterwards. And this can have several reasons. One reason is that perhaps their their product, their offering was already improved since they could experiment in the first market. They had to experiment to see what works best and to the extent that uh, the other country has, uh, that people in the other country have similar preferences that would then also work well uh, somewhere else. But I think this the second element, which is very important, is the one about expectations. If you see, oh, this uh, company has been successful in the US and now they're entering some European markets, well, then the expectation is that's the one uh, which will make it. So therefore, I should move soon. No more uh, personal engagement or investment of my time uh, with the, the local hero of the day, but rather switch or at least add as an additional uh, platform the offering from abroad. And this is, if you look at the, the history of Facebook, um, the success story of Facebook that they were able to quickly wipe out um, national heroes uh, in some of the European countries. Uh, these were social networks which had, say, 80 90% uh, of the market at that time, and they were gone in a matter of months or at least, say, one or two years. So that shows that these network effects can uh, be actually... Um, rather dangerous for the the winner of the day if there's somebody from outside who can uh, kind of turn things upside down and make these network effects uh, work in favor uh, of itself. So so that's one element of dynamics. If you're in a strong position somewhere, which may be a, a region or a country, or it may be a certain area, take uh, take Amazon. In, in books, uh, and they were able then to move into other product categories. Um, they not only gain experience, uh, they may have some economies of scale and scope in their operations, but on top of that, they may be um, more easily able to convince uh, consumers to move. The second one is, of course, product differentiation, how you can uh, become successful. You offer something which works particularly well for a particular niche, which may already be uh, catered for by some more general purpose uh, platform, but um, participants may not be extremely happy with it. And then if you have a tailor-made offer to make, uh, you may be able to move consumers despite consumers uh, or all the participants, despite uh, the, the coordination problem. One example for this uh, was the um, uh, second, um, some kind of um, artisan products uh, which used to be sold on eBay and then most of that traffic 
moved to Etsy. Uh, so what we have seen there, a small newcomer was able with a better offer to make people uh, move. So that's another possible successful entry strategy. So what did and, what did Etsy do to uh, you know because you could sell you could you could sell your stuff on eBay before. So what did Etsy do that made it um, a better a better venue that people would move to despite and at least initially, I assume, not having the same scope of a market. Yeah, the, the eBay format of selling things was uh, kind of one size fits all. And uh, sellers couldn't provide sufficient information uh, on those products. So they felt constrained and uh, that apparently limited trade because there wasn't enough information made available on eBay and uh, Etsy had this special group or this uh, special category in mind and therefore uh, allowed for much more information transmission right between, so like, uh, between so sellers eBay, and buyers right and because etsy it's like a a lot of customized things so sort of just using words like i guess with words you could say this is a 1972 baseball trading card from this person or uh something like that but and that could work on ebay but if you're talking about like I made a cute little black cat piece of pottery with something on it, then it's it's much harder without like lots of pictures and an explanation to sort of figure yeah, out. And a way to associate with the seller and things like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course one should see, I mean, this is some years ago. So one should also look at how eBay was operating at that point. And uh, so um, Etsy apparently found a way of making both buyers and sellers happier and therefore increasing uh, the volume of trade. Yeah. Um, one other, so if we move to particular types of platforms, Etsy would be one of them, which are uh, two-sided uh, platforms, buyers and sellers interacting with each, with each other. Another way of getting started and overcoming uh, the, the problem of um, coordinating on a good equilibrium is actually to partially vertically integrate, meaning that um, the platform takes an active position itself. And uh, that's what we have been seeing a lot in the video game industry, where some platform make uh, platform manufacturers also invested in games, not to dominate the whole thing, but to convince independent game developers uh, to become active on their platform. So the, the, the network story goes as follows. If uh, we have such a, a game console uh, put on the market and there are some uh, most likely very successful games already available made by the console maker itself, this will convince sufficiently many consumers to buy the console and that prospect then convinces game developers in return to independent game developers uh, to have um, games for that platform available as well. Right. Although then there's also the, um, you know, the other strategy of trying to keep everything in-house and sort of, uh, or not allow anyone else onto your platform to, to preserve that kind of monopoly status with that Definitely. platform. Definitely. So yeah, so it's not necessarily the model which is taken, and that may be time-dependent. If we look at Amazon as a initially as a retailer, um, so there was no other seller out there, and then later on Amazon opened its marketplace to let 
independent uh, sellers enter. So initially it was this kind of closed, um, in that sense, vertically integrated, uh, that uh, the platform only had its uh, its own products for resale, whereas at a later point, the marketplace was opened and uh, third-party sellers were invited. Right. And I guess that, and then another, another angle that, that often comes up, especially, you know, here in Silicon Valley is the uh, just venture capital, the role of venture capital, where, you know, if you want to get something started up, they just aggressively spend lots and lots and lots of money to, you know, make it attractive, to let everyone know that it's attractive. And also just to create that self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, people are spending billions of dollars on it. So it must be, you know, it must be a big deal. It's going to be, it's going to be established. Yes, I think that culture, I think, works very well with industries where network effects are pronounced, uh, especially if there is uh, something of a first mover advantage, so that even though it can go the other way, that it tends to be that these network effects tend to go in favor of those who are first uh, first in. And in that case, it is just uh, essential to scale up and also to devote all energy on making a, a product or a service which will be by adapted as many as by as many people as possible uh, quickly and think about making money at a later point in time mm-hmm. although some of them seems like they're the later point in time still is forever later <laughs> they're having trouble making, well, it, making that well, shift i guess we're also talking about some platforms where people are actually um, astonished by the huge amounts of profits they make and in the end of course for many of those at the early days it's a bet and only few bets will pay out uh, pay off but uh, some of them uh, do in a nice uh, do quite nicely right yeah that's true that's a fundamental of of well, it's fundamental of, I guess, technologies, but yeah, as you said, with the, the network effects kind of adds that extra level of where it really is just a, a roll of the dice. And, and get, getting back to the network effect story, so the mm-hmm. stuff we are also covering in this book, uh, what we are seeing is that some platforms are growing in the way that they're adding sites. Uh, so uh, I think, again, the Amazon might be an example that it's adding third-party sellers, it is adding or has been adding also certain uh, service providers. We have seen it uh, with uh, also social networks where we were saying it's first just this network, but then this the advertiser side was added. Arguably, there's a separate uh, influencer side. Uh, certain types of content providers are added. Uh, so what is used to be um, a platform in which participants were all treated similarly, uh, it has become a much more um, complex system to run where uh, the governance um, plays out not just on the consumer side, but also with specific offers to separate groups. And this can go in the way, as I mentioned, adding groups, but it may also be that uh, what used to be one group uh, is kind of separated into multiple groups. If you think about um, YouTube uh, or some of the other uh, streaming uh, platforms with uh, user-generated content, well, the idea was, well, we can upload our own stuff. But some people actually 
became pretty good at that. And uh, this became then a separate group, uh, which was then also separately targeted or managed by the platform. Right. Let's actually step, let's step back and make sure people didn't miss that because I don't think we introduced the idea of multi-sided platforms very well. So, so the one-sided network effect is just straightforward, like the telephone network or you know your family and your friends being on Facebook, um, where just more or less the more people are on it, uh, the more valuable it is for, for you. And then kind of the uh, I think for me the simplest example of two-sided network effects that I always teach with is just to think about Uber, right? If there's a whole lot of the riders don't really care how many other riders there are, they care how many you know drivers there are, and the drivers care how many riders there are. So you need to get more drivers to get more riders, more riders to get more drivers, and so it's uh, you know that that complicates the um, so you have these two sided network effects where you care about the other side's presence more. So so what are some of the other um, major issues in that that you you cover in your book, or sort of considerations or. Uh, yeah, so the, so the Uber example works, perhaps with a caveat that I actually do may uh, do care about the other riders, uh, because it, my chance of, of getting a ride may depend also on how uh, unique in a way I am. So there there are certain elements also of, of within uh, group network mm, effects right. present uh, on Uber. And that may that also holds for standard e-commerce platforms where you first think about the buyer-seller interaction, but to the extent that there is seller competition, uh, I do care also about what is happening on my own side. But at least as a first uh, starting point, focus on the the interaction between different groups. Um, there, building up a platform, uh, there this element of vertical integration I was mentioning. Uh, just before is a particularly relevant one because I uh, here I have this problem. I have to convince two groups to join, which may, and these groups <clears throat> may be possible that I think about my family or, or, or acquaintances, what would they do? And perhaps we can somehow coordinate. Uh, but with different groups, buyers and sellers, this seems to, this coordination problem may actually be more problematic. There are many other issues which are arising once you have multi-sided platform. And if you look at the uh, theoretical literature, uh, which became extremely successful and influential starting uh, essentially at the year 2000 or with the main publication 2003, is trying to understand when you have multiple sides, how do you want to price? So what is the pricing structure? Who pays more, which side pays more. And it is important there to understand that what we often might cons- think when there are uh, different prices out there, there may be cross-subsidization, by which we mean that one side uh, pays less, possibly even less than the cost. Well, this may be the optimal strategy for a platform and even for a a social planner, even for a government trying to maximize uh, social welfare. And the reason are, again, network effects. Because what some users in one group benefit from the other use may be very, from the uh, users in the other group may be very different from how these other users are viewing uh, the interaction possibilities. Very good example are traditional media platforms where as a user, we typically don't like advertising or even dislike advertising. So in saying commercial television, uh, 
uh, whereas advertisers are keen to get access to those consumers. So that means that the network effect from consumers to advertisers is positive. Advertisers like to be on a platform with more users, whereas uh, more consumers where mm. or viewers, whereas consumers are actually happier on a platform where there's less advertising. There we see it's very natural to have a very asymmetric pricing structure, namely the advertisers should pay. These are the ones who are actually interested in being on this platform and getting access to consumers, whereas consumers, I mean, they are suffering from advertising. So therefore, they may get a subsidy or at least free content. Right, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and so that, that yeah, and that's definitely the most clear, clear illustration of that. None of us really enjoy advertising, but uh, but we we put up with it as uh, the the well the implicit price of the service, but not the explicit price. I guess the other uh, the other thing people you know say is in some sense, certain sense, you're paying paying with your data by by revealing your behavior and your preferences on the platform, and that that also being used to target the advertising. So this very basic uh, example, so with uh, traditional commercial television, there wasn't much data. So there you essentially, if you want, pay with your attention. Mm-hmm. And then the data aspect is uh, is an additional one, which plays out much more prominently uh, with the digital platforms we're talking about, uh, where those data provide uh, an advantage uh, for a number of reasons to those platforms uh, which get access to those data. So it may improve their monetization possibility on with that particular service because they just provide, for example, better targeted advertising. So we are not suffering for more advertising, but the advertisers which reach us uh, are the ones who are really keen on reaching us and therefore they're willing to pay a higher price. And uh, so that's how these these data then play out. Or those data may actually be used for uh, other services which are not directly related to the one where those data were generated. So there may be just a data sale and then those data may also become um, attractive. Mm-hmm. And it can, of course... Uh, improve the overall performance also from a consumer perspective. So these data, in some cases, uh, take Amazon, are used to make consumers also better off, for example, by getting uh, better recommendations, possibly by filtering out um, unreliable ratings, so making rating systems more precise. So all these are ways uh, in which the the platform actively can generate network effects, strengthen network effects. That's actually, um, I think, an important starting point, and therefore we dedicate a a full chapter uh, of the book on how platforms, through their decisions, affect the strength of network effects. And the two examples where the two uh, applications we look at in more detail are recommender systems and rating systems. Right. So what are some of the key features of those uh, recommender and rating systems that um, you you highlight in the book? So what we try to do there is to see to what extent are there really network effects. Um, For example, if I leave my data 
and uh, to the platform and then the platform can use those data and provide me with something which works better and perhaps doesn't even rely on data collected from somebody else. Then the data are relevant for the quality of the recommendations I receive, but they're not really network effects present. So network effects happen if my data are also useful to provide um, better recommendations to others. And where we see this, where it at least in principle can happen, as an example would be Amazon, where Amazon makes recommendations of what I may want to buy based on what others bought who showed similar purchase interests as I did. So there the use of the, of the data from the whole group um, allows the platform to make better recommendations. Um, what we do in the book is on the one hand just show how a platform which wants to provide the best experience, how it would organize and manage uh, such, say, recommender systems and what implications this has. For example, there has been the question, is it now possible uh, that the type of products we are buying looks very different uh, than in a world in which such recommender systems did not exist? And there are arguments that um, and also empirical studies uh, which show that in some instances at least um, small items, uh, niche items, have a better chance to be found and therefore be bought. And this may lead to more diversity of products um, for us in, in, the, in the marketplace. And, what, right. we also and do, what we also do in the book is then to look at to what extent a extreme a monopoly platform, or more generally you should think about a platform with market power, has an incentive to actually bias this. So it's in a way sacrifices the quality of the overall system in order to make more money. Right, because I know because because I have that that market power because of the network effects are so strong. Even if your your platform becomes no longer the best platform in in some dimensions or sacrifices some quality and skews the choice of products, but I'm still going to go there because everything else about it is because it's the place to go. Yes, it may be due to network effects, maybe, of course, due to other, there may be other reasons why I want to go to this platform. There may be also scale economies involved. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazon has a, a excellent logistics system. Um, and uh, so there may be other reasons of why I want to go to a particular platform. And uh, the platform has to be very careful, so it can't sacrifice everything. In the end, it is overall consumer experience uh, which um, drives consumers to a particular platform. But with market power, you can give up a bit. I mean, it's the same thing as a, uh, if you just set a price. If you charge an infinite price, you won't, even as a monopolist, you won't have anybody buying it. And, um, but you can charge definitely more than a competitive price. All right. Um, so, so why don't we talk about, um, actually, the uh, last um, interview I did was with Anne Kokos, who's a scholar of uh, communications, and, um, but her, her most recent book is called Trafficking Data, and is talking about um, the, the interrelationship between the U.S. and Chinese um, and worldwide uh, sort of uh, data ecosystems, or whatever you want to call them. And one of the concerns that she expressed in the book is that because... Uh, in China, there's um, 
more access to data. There's less sort of privacy, consumer privacy protections. Uh, and also that the government is requiring companies to house their data there, that they're going to get sort of a long-term advantage over um, over Western companies. I don't know if you have a view on that particular issue, but I'm curious in general, like how you see uh, the emergence of, um, you know, the, the major Chinese platforms onto the world stage as, as affecting um, how you see that, how you see that playing out or, or what people should be looking for. Well, I think, um, so I'm, mostly looking at competition problems and mm-hmm. what has been said um, in in a number of uh, policy discussions is, well, just look around. We are seeing uh, a lot of competitors emerging to uh, some of the big digital players based in the U.S. And uh, the question is then, well, where did those grow if it is really a prerequisite to be able to challenge one of the existing large players to have been growing up and experimenting and building up a business model in China, if that's the prerequisite to be successful elsewhere in the world, then I would not think that we have solved the competition problem. So I think uh, to that extent, I am... Uh, concerned about uh, the possibility of uh, challenging currently very strong players. This should be possible also for players emerging new in the US, in Europe, or anywhere else, uh, but in an area where they are already competing with uh, the currently strong players and not in China where they're not competing against Google, Facebook, and so on. Okay, so so the fact that TikTok can you know challenge YouTube and and uh, Facebook and so on, uh, and you know kind of reduce their monopoly power, is not you know on on one sense to the extent that we think you know competition in these markets is good to, to discipline all the players to provide a you know higher quality or lower priced product. Uh, it would it seems good, but you're saying it, it could only potentially could only emerge uh, in the kind of protected uh, protected network of of china and so by having that home base to grow on then it can expand outwards but but that's not something we want to rely on as the only source of of uh competitive pressure for for u.s and european firms i think yes for a number of reasons that's not the only type of competitive pressure we would like to have so when we talk about the market being uh, possibly contestable, meaning that newcomers have with a good uh, product or service have a chance of success, then this should not require them to be first building up their base somewhere where they are protected or at least not face this, this uh, the existing large competitor um, and rather should be able to make this success happen being based and rolling out things in Europe or the U.S. Okay, and so um, so this book doesn't uh, doesn't mainly talk about regulation. Is that so? But that's your that's going to be your next book. Is that right? So that's uh, work in progress. So we are currently working on a second book where we are much more looking at competition and uh, the regulatory landscape. Um, there has been a good reason uh, why this comes in two books. Um, the first reason is that we were slow and wanted to um, at least have the conceptual issues out there. 
And the second reason is that there has been quite some movement on the regulatory scene. There have been interesting uh, competition cases. Uh, So in that sense, I think it's even worth the wait because, for example, in Europe, we now know how the digital market act at least looks in print, how it will be dealt with, that we still have to wait a bit, but at least we know what we're talking about, uh, whereas uh, when the first book came out, um, well, we didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Although uh, I guess I sh- we should, so yeah, so just to be clear, your first book in a sense kind of covers the, is more uh, timeless, I guess, in the sense that, you know, it, it covers these core theoretical issues of how, how platforms work, what the issues are they have to solve, how the different kinds of network externalities, you know, same side and cross side work out. And so in, in that sense, it's going to be, um, yeah, it's not something that, that gets outdated quickly. Um, although, of course, you know, 10 years from now, the students reading the book won't, won't even remember some of the examples. But um, uh, We will have to change yeah. the names, that's true, change but the names not, the, not the concept. Uh, yes, right. but I, the, the risk is that even though the second book will be out later than the first one, that the uh, second edition of the second book might be out earlier than the second edition of the first book. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps by because, because of the need, because the, the competition landscape is much more of a yes, yes, dynamic indeed. thing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to seeing that book. Um, all right, well, we're just about um, out of time. So um, uh, for, so I wanted to say for, for those uh, in the audience who were interested enough in these topics to have listened this far, I wanted to give a quick plug for our Master's of Applied Economics program that we offer here at the University of San Francisco, um, either for you if you're in that uh, stage of life or if you have uh, students or younger colleagues uh, at your work who you advise and might be looking for um for their next uh, step in graduate study. Um, Our program focuses on the microeconomics of the digital economy, things like this textbook, which we've used as well. Um, And in addition, couples that with a particular emphasis on learning the programming and analytic techniques, working with data that are needed to get a job and start making an immediate contribution in the the digital economy. Um, And we're also conveniently located in San Francisco in the center of the global digital economy next to both the headquarters of the old guard uh, firms who've already got their network uh, network economics all set up and of all the upstarts and startups that are hoping to replace them. Um, so we are open to applications uh, for this fall. Um, so I wanted to say that. And then I also wanted to, um, Martin, give you a chance to uh, tell people who uh, would rather study in, in Europe uh, what, what you have going on at Mannheim. Yes, we like competition. So there are multiple master programs out there. And in Mannheim, we have set up a particular track which focuses on competition regulation economics, doing theory, empirics, uh, and also has a law component. So this is supposed to uh, prepare people who are particularly interested in issues of competition economics and who are then likely to end up with competition authorities or economics consultancies. So this uh, program... And the, the track for that uh, is available in Mannheim, has a very international intake, and um, we are very happy if we receive more applications. And taught all in English, is that right? It's taught all in English Great. by people who speak English like me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, yeah, definitely heard thicker accents than yours out there. So uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds like should not be a challenge for anyone. Um 
So uh, great. Well, thank you very much for uh, for coming on the show. And um, uh, again, um, this is uh, the book is the Economics of Platforms: Concepts and Strategies by Paul Belflam and Martin Pipes. Um, we had the privilege of talking to Martin today. And I encourage anyone who uh, wants to have a deeper understanding of these topics to go out and get a copy of the book.